but the dudes, the blow-dry, the feathered, just masterpieces. And if you don't right away think to yourself, that's a bad idea, then you've never seen a movie. You would look, there's a radio guy. I know. There's a radio murder in it. There's spelunking. There's cannibalism. There's a beard like nobody's business. <laughs> that sounds like a good time. We're going back to college this time on the Fright Club podcast. And we've got a special guest, which means I'm going to try to get through the whole thing without comparing GPAs. Because if we do that, I'm going to come out the loser. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to talk about movies. Welcome. This is the Fright Club Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we are from madwolf.com, and have we recovered yet from the jump scares? Man, that got the heart racing. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> it was. Got a great response. People love jump scares. They do. You don't. <laughs> but what we did, we found... I like that, some of them. Yes, that's the thing, is that there are so many... We, we couldn't come up with a shorter list. We have 10, but there are a bunch more that could have made the list. Uh, and today's guest, it's funny actually had never seen The Exorcist 3. So I think that he's been needled to do it. This was the push over the cliff, and Good. he loved it, and he called the scare in question the chef's kiss. Mm. And then Can't the, argue with that. Rubicon Films, they represent the film The Droving, and well, actually we're going to have director George Popov yeah. on. They pointed to a different psycho jump scare. So we talked about how we didn't include the big reveal, but they like the one the first time you see Mother when the the detective is at the house and mm-hmm. he goes upstairs. Yeah, that oh. right before the good fall scene. Oh, right before the fall. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's a good one. But the only other one that got a lot of comments was the big jump scare in Sinister. Uh, yeah. I think there's a lot of love out there for Sinister. Yeah. Well, thanks for the input, as always. Good stuff. It was a fun podcast, and it was uh, it was the first time that we did a poll to decide what our topic would be, and jump scares won. And because we didn't go in-depth, we talked about 10, so the fuzziest math ever. And we got a great crowd to join us, and some. I think people really enjoyed that one. Yeah, and it was the first time we did it live on Vimeo. Um, There are things we like about doing Facebook Live, but the nice thing about doing Vimeo is we can actually show the trailers, just like we do when we have it live at the Gateway Film Center. So you have that immediacy of reacting to the jump scare, which was perfect because, as I said when we recorded it, I jumped a little bit on a couple of those and I knew it was coming. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. That was all, Thanks for all the... Uh, the feedback and the all the participation while we taped it, so that was a that was a gas. But now we're getting into college, and uh, is this one? How do we come up with this topic, particularly? Well, specifically, our uh, our co-host today tweeted at us and told us that we ought to get get into some college horror. So our 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 guest today is movie blogger and PhD student Gordon Maples, and he suggested that we do a podcast on. College horror, and actually, that was what prompted the poll. To be honest with you, so we had, and it and it came in second. So we did it second, and so we're we're really grateful that he decided not only to recommend the topic but join us. Thank you for being here, Gordon. Of course, uh, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, this is definitely a topic. This is sort of my academic field. I study higher education, uh, and I've been running a blog series on college portrayals and movies. So I thought that horror would be a really interesting. Thing to look at. I had actually been watching uh, one of these Ted Bundy documentaries and thinking about how you know he sort of went on a, a spree killing and targeted colleges in the uh, late '70s, kind of right before the slasher boom got mm-hmm. really big. 
So it got me thinking about horror in college. So I'm really happy to be talking about this. And I don't think we mentioned your blog. Oh, yeah. My blog is uh, misentropy, M-I-S-A-N-T-R-O-P-E-Y.com. And I've been running a series called Ivy on Celluloid on college films, Mm -hmm. which has been a whole whole lot of fun to do. I've been doing it over the last couple of years. Uh, But I also I'm early on. I went through the whole IMDb bottom 100 uh, and I've done a few other just sort of uh, cheesy things like that looking at bad movies, cult movies, what have you. And you're currently at NC State? Yeah, I uh, got my master's degree at Vanderbilt, and then I just started at NC State. I just finished up my first PhD year there. So what's uh, what's the mood right there as far as current events? What's the plan? Classes? Do you have anything concrete to get back at? The- I've not heard anything. NC State's part of a pretty big university system, the, the UNC system, and they have not announced anything as of yet. Uh, so far... I am anticipating them going a little more conservatively. Uh, I suspect we will be online, uh, but it has really varied by mm. university system, what they've been doing. I've heard Alabama's going back, Purdue's going back. Uh, but yeah, California State is going online, but we'll just see. It, it's very yeah. much, there's not a whole lot of commonalities about what they're right. going to be doing. Very fluid situation. So. Perfect time to uh, put our heads together. And you guys really did, because coming up with this top five list, pretty much, you guys are pretty much in agreement. So great minds, really great minds are thinking alike here. But what we're yeah, going to do, sorry, what we're going to do is take a couple minutes longer than we usually do to talk about the also rants. Because the, the one movie that Gordon had brought up that wasn't on the list, which I would love for you to tell us why you wanted to talk about it, why you thought it might be worth watching, is Final Exam. Yeah, Final Exam, uh, 1981, right in the middle of that big slasher boom and this is i wouldn't even say it's necessarily a super good movie but it's a really interesting movie like from my perspective like as an academic looking at the history of higher education it is pretty much a run-of-the-mill slasher but it all takes place on a college campus they filmed it on a real college campus they filmed it with college students they actually recruited students from throughout the carolinas from a few different drama programs to fill it out so it, it feels like college students of the time Uh, But also there's a few moments in it that just like are kind of shocking and sort of amazing looking back. It also has a fantastic trailer that I highly recommend looking up. But early in the movie, there is a prank or a I believe it's a fraternity shows up in an unmarked white van and they start just firing guns all over campus, which is something that in 1981 might have looked like something I might have maybe evoked more of like the tower shooting at UT Austin. But today it looks very, very different and would not at all come off as a prank. But yeah, there's things like that. Just that just it really punctuates how different a lot of things. Also, there's a like nowadays, it's not uncommon for a university to have a whole police department situated on campus. But in this movie, it's just a sort of sleepy, as I recall, drunk security guard in charge of the whole campus. So there's things like that that just sort of like, wow, this is a totally different time and setting. But yeah, it's kind of a fun old sort of, I think it's got a little bit of cult acclaim, but totally worth digging up. Final exam, 1981. It, it's definitely out there. That's funny. One security guard for the whole campus. I mean, <laughs> yeah. coming from Ohio State like we do, they have a very huge uh, police department. So that would be, that would not quite be enough, especially if you're drunk. No. Yeah, I have not seen that one. I haven't seen the trailer either, so I'll have to check that out. Yeah, there are a couple others. That one, uh, I'm not going to say it reminds me of, but it did kind of, I think probably the time period put me in the, uh, it, it made me think of the film Pieces, which I had not thought mm. about in terms of college horror. And it's, uh, I, I don't, 
care for the film pieces. I know that it's got a, a huge cult following, but it certainly wouldn't have made the final list. But it, it occurred to me as I was watching uh, the trailer for Final Exam that 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 would be one worth mentioning. Um, and also, of course, I think Happy Death Day kind of brought horror back to the college campus because we hadn't seen really one college specifically on the college campus, not since like the early 2000s kind of CW crossover flooded the kind of slasher, post-slasher genre. We saw everything everywhere. But the the other one that we watched a couple days ago, maybe a week ago, just to see if it was going to make the final list or not, and I had forgotten how not very good it was, (laughs) was Hell Night. You know, the funny thing about Happy Death Day, uh, I just watched this for the first time earlier this week, and I was really surprised at how impressive it portrays a college campus. It filmed at Loyola University in New Orleans, which is a gorgeous campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to Tulane for my freshman year, which is literally right next door. And it is the the sort of the repeating nature where they sort of go back to the dorm room and then the quad Showing the quad in that way with all the tables set up and all the sort of activities, I don't see that a lot in in college movies. Mm. But it definitely that's what it feels like to walk around on a college campus on an average day. So it does capture that really well. And it's just it's a fun movie. I don't think it's necessarily a great movie, but I think it's it's an interesting little portrayal there. Yeah, I think both of us, when we saw it in the first place, thought that it was considerably better than what we expected going in. And it's funny because the sequel which we don't even consider a horror film by any stretch. We were really disappointed in, although I think it has, I think Happy Death Day to You has maybe more fans than the original one. But then the other one, George, did you want to mention, did you want to say anything about reliving 1981 when we watched Hell Night the other day? (laughs) Yeah, it was. Well, first of all, the hair just jumped out. Usually in those 80s movies, especially the late 80s, it's the women's hair that jumps out huge. You know, you had the huge rock and roll hair. But the dudes... The blow dry, the feathered, just masterpieces from Vince Van Patten and the other guys in this was just a thing of beauty. (laughs) It was. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny. It's not a very good film, as most of the ones that we just mentioned are not very good films. One of the things that I thought was really, that I'd forgotten about in this movie, um, besides that, by the way, Vince Van Patten hasn't aged. He's a vampire. He is not aging. He's on that poker show all the time. I know, we saw him last night in the poker show. You look maybe five years older than you did when you were uh, just happening upon a bunch of free weapons at the police station that you could smuggle out and go back. That was great. Here's a table of weapons. (laughs) But it's funny because the film, as, as slashers tend to be, there's always, you know, the suggestion of sex and everybody is, you know, you know, splitting off and having sex, and that's how you know they're going to die, of course. But the thing about then that's that happens constantly in this movie, but you never see any nudity at all in the whole film. Although the entire movie is shot down Linda Blair's cleavage, right? <laughs> so I guess it evens out. <laughs> and then they have that just shameless copy of the horse's head scene from Godfather. I mean, <laughs> oh no, oh yeah, that was great. And one more, you were uh, considering the House on Sorority Row. Yeah, I rewatched it and realized that I, I, I didn't even have that sort of so bad it's good fondness for it that I thought I had. So we thought, I thought, well, I mean, I'll mention it, but I don't, we're not going to dig into it. So we could just jump into the actual top five at this point. Yeah. Yeah, why not? Okay, speaking of the 80s, we're going to start there. 1986, alien brain parasites. All right, you got me. Entering humans through the mouth, turn their host into a killing zombie. Some teenagers start to fight against them in Night of the Creeps. The night of the fall is finally here for Chris, Cindy, and JC. 
it's going to be the best night of their lives. But tonight is also the night of the creeps. From a world unknown comes a nightmare unimagined. First, they are under you, around you, on you, and then inside you. They get in through your mouth, and you walk around while they incubate, even if you're dead. They are a new breed of terror. They are a different kind of horror. Zombies, exploding heads, creepy crawlies. We could have a little problem. The creeps are taking over. I got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. You have never had a night like this. Night of the Creeps. If you scream, you're dead. Night of the Creeps. I absolutely adore this movie. I love the style of it. I absolutely, I'll pretty much buy anything that Tom Atkins is going to be hanging out. Right, right. Uh, I love the way the aliens move. They just move in this really just skin crawling. But I love the setting. Like, it really does play with the sort of college campus setting with the fraternities and sororities and these sort of, you know, uh, on-the-outs losers trying to find their way into these societies. Yeah, Night of the Creeps, this is one I go back to. And every time I get smoke gets in your eyes, caught in my head for just months. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is one of my favorite sort of good old, you know, mid-80s cult movies. This is one I definitely love. Well, this is one that Tom Atkins has said, I think in numerous interviews, it's the favorite movie of his many, many. And you can kind of see, he seems like he's having a blast in this. He really does, more so than others. Yeah, and he he is. I mean, he's such a favorite figure in in horror films, especially of the 80s. And he, he, he often plays that same sort of, you know, badass, hard guy. But in this one, I mean, the first time we see him, he's about to kill himself. So it is, it's a, it's a different kind of... It's almost like a, a self-referential portrayal that he's doing throughout. And it's such a great um, juxtaposition, the way he is portraying his character as opposed to the way everybody else is, because everybody else is just a goofball idiot. And then to see him sort of <laughs> like partner up with these goofball idiots, I think is a lot of fun. Fred Decker, of course, who did Monster Squad, he's the director of this movie. And, and one of the things, the writer as well, and one of the things that I think he, the, one of the reasons that this movie stands the test of time where so many kind of cheesy 80s movies doesn't, is that he had such a very clear vision of what he was doing. It is such an ode to be horror. It's, I mean, it's so, it embraces it. It embraces the cliches. And more than anything, you can see it right away. You can see it in, in almost everything about the film, but the, the names, right? There's a there's a Sergeant Ramey. There's a uh, the girl's last name is Cronenberg. <laughs> you know, there's a Hooper. There's a Cameron. There's uh, a, a Romero. When a character's name is Cronenberg, you pretty much know <laughs> what they're trying to reference there, pretty much. And also, I was reminded in watching the trailer in the bathroom stall there, you can't miss Striper Rules on, on the side. <laughs> On the side. And that is because I just found out there's a great reason for that, because the makeup artist for this movie was seeing the striper singer, Michael Sweet, at the time, and they ended up getting married. Oh, I see. Yes, because unlike Poison's uh, girlfriends at the time, (laughs) striper was a little more wholesome. Those bandmates go. (laughs) I think one of the the ways you can tell that this film has something of substance to it is the way that 
it has influenced other films. In, in particular, one of our all-time favorites, James Gunn's Slither, which opens almost plagiarism. I mean, it's so, so, so similar to this movie, which in itself, this movie is very clear in the way that it kind of pays tribute to the Cronenberg film Shivers and how all three of these films have those big slug monsters that are trying to get into your body. There's nothing sexual in the way that that's represented at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's just wonderful. Like, I can't recommend this one highly enough. It does at times feel like the college setting is somewhat incidental to it. Uh, But I do like initially sort of the sort of losers on the outs trying to find their way into the sort of good graces uh, and into the party life a little bit. But yeah, this one's so fun. So fun to watch. I would love to do like a double feature of this with uh, Slither. That would be so. Oh, yeah. Just weird little wormy things. At the drive-in, since some more of the drive-ins are opening up right now. Absolutely. That would be perfect. Good idea. Let's get on that. Night of the Creeps, number five on our college horror list from 1986. And we'll move up to number four. This is one I think that benefited, at least for us, from one of those movies that benefits from low expectations. We weren't expecting a lot, but man, it was a blast. It's from 2018. A group of college freshmen pledge an exclusive fraternity, but soon realize there's more at stake than they could have ever imagined. It's just called Pledge. Are you ready to pledge? Yes, sir! Over the next 48 hours, you will be tested physically, mentally, emotionally. Privilege comes with hard work. Sacrifice. This is part of tradition. What does this have to do with the club? We're looking for your breaking point because great men don't have one. We can't keep doing this for 48 hours. It's just hazy. That's what frats do. David, this isn't a frat. Come on. Yeah, we sat down to watch this a couple of uh, years ago, and I forget the running time. It's not very long, maybe 80-some minutes. So it is lean and mean and and it moves, and it's not not a masterpiece, but it is a ton of fun, and it delivers on the uncomfortable violence. It really does. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those instances where we use the word fun in a way some other people might (laughs) not, because it is. It's a nasty little film, and it opens up. One of the reasons that you stick it out, although, again, it's not very long, it opens up with such a cliche, such a cliche, but the three lead performances, which are like, you know, the three best friends who are also losers who are trying to find some tribe to accept them once they get to as their college freshmen. The reason that you stick it out is because the three performances are so very, very um, authentic and they the friendship feels very real. So what they do, of course, is they get tricked into going at the like at the wrong time to a rush party. So the party is long over and then they're pissed off and they're having this terrible, terrible day on this day that the, the in particular one of the three wants to rush a fraternity. When a hot girl says, hey, what are you guys doing? You should come to a party later. And if you don't right away think to yourself, that's a bad idea, then you've never seen a movie. And so, uh, you know, I didn't have I wasn't loving this in the first, I guess, act because I thought, well, you know, I mean, I've seen American Werewolf in Paris. I mean, you know, there's so many where you're like, don't don't go to that. But it really takes some unexpected but not inauthentic turns. And it gets so mean And eventually you realize that it's not just sort of eviscerating the hyper-masculine tribal nature of fraternities. It's looking specifically at the American idea of success, of, of privilege, of entitlement. And again, and that it's done. It's such a it's such a quick, tidy, dirty little film. And the soup, the nastiness Uh that the, the actual hazing is so 
just gut-wrenchingly nasty that it's impossible like to keep your eyes on it the whole time. Yeah, the director is Daniel Robbins. And the writer, Zach Weiner, he also stars as one of the nerds. Yeah. And no offense, Zach, you're a good nerd. Yes, <laughs> You're a good writer, too. Yeah, that's right. A good writer, too. And it has... You think you have it figured out, and then you don't, because it's nice. Even in this short uh, running time, it delivers a nice little twist that upends everything uh, toward the toward the finale. And it's just it's it's lean, it's mean, it's nasty, but it is in its own way fun. And interestingly, Gordon, you actually have some academic background knowledge about this, like sort of fraternities and secret societies and things like that. I have. This is a movie I actually haven't seen yet, but I've been meaning to to get around to it. Because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here, the sort of uh, sort of premise here of there's an allure and a sort of fear when it comes to things like uh, fraternities and hazing and the sort of secrecy and rituals around that. And not to mention secret societies like another movie that's not by any means a horror movie, but plays with this idea of the secrecy and elitism of these societies is the skulls Oh yeah, uh, sort of playing on the skull and bone society, which. Really, Yale is just all about secret societies, and there's more secret societies at universities than we might realize. Uh, when I went to University of Alabama, there's a secret society called the Machine, which at this point is hardly secret. Uh, but like at the University of Texas, there's the Eyes of Texas. Like there's so many secret societies, but they're mostly, I would say, like totally benign. But it really captures the fascination of like the public in the same way that like the Illuminati does. And mm-hmm. I love the idea of movies playing with that. And in the same way, fraternities and sororities, they have a long history. There's a lot of secrecy and exclusivity, and it plays into sort of a college as a vessel of elitism. Sort of as you were saying, Hope, that this is it's is a really interesting way to play with college as a setting, to sort of tap into the sort of privilege and class divide that's there. Yeah, so I, I'm really looking forward to seeing this one. I like that it's sort of playing with a different angle on uh, the college setting to get at horror. Um, they have to take me. I'm a legacy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we like that one. That's Pledge, number four from 2018. Moving up to number three, a very well-known flick from 1997, two years after the first series of murders as Sydney acclimates to college life. Someone donning the ghost-faced costume begins a new string of killings. It's Scream 2. There's some freaked out psycho trying to follow in Billy Loomis's footsteps. You probably already know. The way I see it, someone's out to make a scene. So it's our job to observe the rules of the scene. Number one, the body count is always bigger. Number two, death scenes are always much more elaborate. Now in this one, the college setting is appropriate because in the last one, they were in high school. So they all graduated from high school, those who survived it, and they moved on to college. And not, you know, not all of the survivors went to the same college. So that's good. I mean, just the two, just uh, uh, Jamie Kennedy and uh, and and then Sydney Prescott, of course. And so she's got a new batch of friends uh, who who haven't yet been murdered. Um, and, and the film itself, uh, of course, same writer, same director. They hit the same just exceptional note of self parody uh, and at the same time, really embrace horror they're not it's not like uh, the scary movie series where they're just making fun of horror tropes these guys embrace it which makes sense of course because Wes Craven is directing it and that was his that's been his bread and that was his bread and butter his whole life 
This one is also incredibly clever because in the way that the first one examines under a microscope horror tropes, the sequel examines sequels, which it appeals endlessly to the nerd in me. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so, so still beloved uh, in the horror community, because because it's like we feel it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I I love like it's hard not to love the scary movies for the way that they sort of play with your expectations of the rules as like a horror nerd with the knowledge of that. Like I like how they sort of weave that into sort of the curricular uh, portrayal here with like the film class where they're discussing sequels, like what makes a good sequel? What are the best sequels? It's a little like looking back on it kind of goofy. I think it was we hate movies uh, podcast did an episode on this where they absolutely hate this movie. Mm. I don't hate it. I think it's fine, but like it hasn't necessarily aged great, particularly as there's been more self-aware horror that's come like sort of afterwards. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's totally fun. I think they did a good job of like weaving this sort of meta discussion of sequels into the actual classroom. Yes, exactly. They had the new set of rules for the sequel and uh, and looked upon it. And it was actually one of the first I think it was one of the first major movies to suffer a leak of the script. Uh, it got out, and they had to go back and rewrite a lot of things and tighten the secrecy. But we have a special uh, personal relationship with this movie. It always reminds me of the night, the first night we went to see it. Man, the place, the theater was packed. And we were way in the back, and this couple was beside us. And if you remember the the very beginning, it's when Omar Epps and uh, Jada Pinkett Smith are sitting there, and they're, they're getting to watch the movie. And he says, she says that she wants his popcorn or his candy or something like that. And, and he says, don't you have your own? And she says, yeah, but I want yours. And the guy sitting right beside us yelled at the top of his lungs at the screen, that's how it is. <laughs> 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 and I thought, oh, okay, that's going to be one of those. And it really was one of those nights where people were having so much fun. They're yelling at the screen. And normally I'm ready to kill somebody in that setting. But it, it sort of works for that movie. I didn't mind it so much. Yeah, it really does. And, you know, self-referential horror definitely got grew tiresome. I mean, but but Scream, the original Scream, more or less, I'm sure it didn't introduce it, but it definitely is what brought it into the mainstream. This and this is a spoiler. So if for some reason you haven't seen this now, 25 year old movie, don't listen right now. But this also made one of our early podcasts of sexy villains because I've always had a crush on Timothy Oliphant. And so well, I was going to say, this is one of the first breakout roles for him. And he's just great. Yes. I mean, the whole cast is great. You know, you've got Liev Shriver in it and Laurie Metcalf, who who she's <laughs> yeah. one of the reasons I think this film is more clearly a comedy than the one before. Although it's still, you know, it's still really it is a horror film. It's a bloody film. It's a slasher. It's it's tense and everything. But Laurie Metcalf, who's always great in everything. She's just deadpan glorious in this movie. And by the way, we should say just in the last week or so, news broke of Scream 5, yeah. looks like, is on the docket. The only one confirmed so far is David Arquette. So yep. Dewey will be back, but I think they're working on more. They are. I think they're probably trying to reach out to a lot of people, but Nev Campbell has has definitely been approached and she's been bouncing around. I mean, mm-hmm. so it seems uh, not confirmed, but likely. And also, I think Kevin Williamson is involved as a... A consultant, maybe he's yeah. not. I don't think he's listed as a writer or director, but he's he's involved in it. So it'll be in the same universe, in the same oh, yeah, world, definitely. especially with Dewey. Yeah. So uh, we can look forward to Scream Five. Scream Two, number three in our list of college horror, takes us up to number two, a classic from 1974. During their Christmas break, a group of sorority girls are stalked by a stranger. Black Christmas. Hello. Yeah, it's me. Who are you? 
are you? For God's sake, what are you doing? Who is it? I'm going to kill you. This movie over the years has become a classic and much beloved by so many people. Case in point, Olivia Hussey, one of the stars, uh, she, when she was meeting producers for the movie Roxanne, Steve Martin, of course, was one of, in charge of that. He met her and said, oh, my God, you were in one of my all-time favorite films. She thought he was talking about Romeo and Juliet, and he said, no, Black Christmas, he had seen it about 27 times. <laughs> anyway, I <Wow>. liked him. <laughs> you know, it gets a, a lot... Of credit for being, if not the first, among the first slashers. And and what I what I love about and then actually when you watch any of those that kind of are lumped into that, the first slasher, is to watch a slasher unfold that doesn't adhere to the rules because it came out before the rules, I think is is just for me fascinating. And I always love watching this movie. I think Margot Kidder is great. I think Olivia Hussey is great. For me, and this is a lot like the way when we talk about the film The Ring. And you always bring up, George, that the ring wouldn't have worked if that video wasn't creepy. For me, the reason that this movie works, and it does a lot of things, and it broke a lot of new ground, right? But the reason it works is because that voice on the phone, that guy on the phone, is creepy as hell. And he, and it always still, it, it sort of gives me, you know, gives me the creeps, gives me goosebumps whenever he's on the phone. And, and I don't think, I think that was one of the first films that employed something like that. Of course, we saw it later with like When a Stranger Calls and things like that. But I don't think any movie since, except potentially the first Scream, did it as well. Where it's like, you know, the idea of not just hanging up on somebody and then forgetting they ever called. It's so like, why are you still on the phone? But those two movies created a somewhat compelling reason because you, the viewer, were interested in what was going on with this guy on the phone and you wanted them not to hang up yet. So I think that's one of the reasons that it works. Of course, it has stood the test of time for a lot of reasons. And I think of all of the sorority horror films, and there are billions, there are so many, and nearly all of them are about pillow fights and boobs and stalkers and what's what's the problem (laughs) this one is it it it, it, it's lurid yes but i don't think it is it doesn't objectify them to that degree it doesn't turn them into objects that you're waiting to see die i don't think there's any sort of sexual gratification in watching them die and for me i think that's, that's one of the reasons why you can return to it you can watch it again and again whereas the other ones you know that's only interesting Maybe once. For me, not really even then. Yeah, I think what makes this different than a lot of those sort of sorority horror films that would follow is is what it's really playing on. Most of these sorority horror films seem to play on this sort of voyeurism of being on the outside looking into this sort of private life of sorority, this totally fantasy version of it, at least. But with Black Christmas, it's playing on a different thing, and that's the vulnerability of, you know, being free away from home in a new setting, but a setting where you don't have that protection, that security of being sort of around your support network. They have to rely on each other. They're sort of in their own vessel now of the sorority house and putting that under siege. Like the thing that's happening, the psychological terror there is the vulnerability. And that's something that uh, you see in some college horror films. I think it's an interesting thing to play on, particularly if you're dealing with like freshman characters or something like that. But I think it's way more compelling to build on that rather than this just weird allure of like looking in on a society, on uh, a, a sorority 
as just a sort of a creepy outsider. It just doesn't doesn't work for me. I don't think it's very good for horror either. It's just playing in the sort of wanting to see the gore. There's like a weird, uh, almost perverted catharsis, I guess, is what they play on in a lot of those movies that this really doesn't do that. But it's also just really powerful in the way it captures images. I always think about that shot of the corpse in the attic. It's just so kind of like with the collar. It's so creepy. It just sticks with you. And the director here is Bob Clark, uh, most famous, I would imagine, for A Christmas Story, also Porky's, and also Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. (laughs) How much I like that. But uh, apparently the the, uh, idea early on was for the murders to be a lot more graphic on screen, but he thought it would be more interesting to tone it down, and the writer... Uh, Roy Moore agreed with that, so they you know, toned the whole mood of that down, the whole uh, the killings. But it's you mentioned the the trope of the killer calling from inside the house. Apparently, there's a, according to a lot of timelines, there's really two that came just before this. There was a movie called The Severed Arm in 1973, and then there was a TV movie with Kirk Douglas and Gene Seberg, uh, also in 1974, called Mousy, where the police trace to a room upstairs and there's and there's a call there but other you're right it was very very early on in that trope i have to say so i've seen the severed arm nice um, and it's um and it's you would lo- there's a radio guy i know there's a radio murder in it there's spelunking there's cannibalism there's a beard like nobody's business we're gonna have to talk about the severed arm at some point <laughs> that sounds like a good time yeah we'll have to have a beard like nobody's business list <laughs> <laughs> and also, she wanted to mention quickly, because this was just remade, yeah. from a totally different angle, which I don't know if you... Have you seen the remake, uh, the recent remake, Gordon? I've not seen the recent remake. There was a little bit older remake that I saw. A horror porn remake. Yeah, okay. but this one this one took a totally different angle, and though it didn't completely work, I think we re- gave it many props for what it was trying to do. Yeah, I didn't hate it. I mean, it, there there was a certain point in the movie where the motivation of the characters, you just had to shoot yourself in the head because it was so stupid. But what I loved about it was that it was the sorority girls, they're friends, they have actual friendships that are sometimes biting, that are sometimes not. And it's a very feminist film. It's not a very good horror movie, but there are, we can't count high enough to mention every not very good sexist horror movie. So I'm really happy to say just watch the not very good feminist horror movie and one of the reasons that it got the most flack is because again here's a spoiler in the end the sorority boys who may or may not all be possessed they're locked inside the room that's now on fire so even if there are any in there who aren't possessed they're certainly not innocent and nobody's letting them out and they're all gonna die i think i may have stood up and applauded because that's a that's a dangerous choice to make that you're not even going to try to save them because all of the freshman boys need to die. I thought, you know, I can live with that as a very provocative, horrific statement. The other thing, the other movie that I want to mention really quickly because it horrifies me is Revenge of the Nerds. Um, oh God. Which I think, uh, I'm hoping that at this point in history, people don't look back as fondly on that film as they did for such a long time, uh, because it's the most horrific. The sorority girls in this movie are basically innocents. They've done more or less nothing. We just hate them because they date popular boys. And so to get back at the popular boys, the heroes plant surveillance in the innocent women's home. And watch them be naked because that's not horrifying. That's not like a gut punch. They can't be the heroes anymore. They're horrible sexual predators. And how do we know? Because in the end, in the happy ending, 
He has a Darth Vader mask on and has sex with somebody who doesn't know it's him, which is literally rape and also is the happy ending of the movie. So there you go. I can't hate any movie as much as I hate Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, pure hatred for that one. We're agreed. We're in agreement. (laughs) (laughs) With a little smidge of hate. No, a lot of hate. Uh, So let's move up to number one. Speaking of feminist horror, this one uh, slides right in there from 2016. It's the story of a young woman studying to be a vet, developing a craving for human flesh raw. I remember seeing this one, and it's one of those that had though that had that. I don't want to say stigma, but the reputation already of oh, people are seeing this and they're vomiting in the aisles. Well, it's not that bad, of course, but it's got some you know moments that'll make you queasy. What I think that this movie does is Julia Ducournau is her first film, which I always find that amazing when somebody's first movie can be this polished and this this visionary and well thought out. What I think that she does better than most is. She sets up her metaphor and she is completely faithful to it to the very end. And it doesn't at the by the end of the movie, it doesn't feel tortured. It feels like, no, she had a really great way of delivering that sort of coming of age anxiety, um, uh, the fear of what will happen to a sheltered girl once she's completely on her own in college. Uh, the somewhat justified fear of that, you know, uh, it, it, it reminded me at times of Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, which is a movie that we love and have actually shown on Fright Club Live um, leave it to the French to have two different uh, cannibal sex movies. Um, and uh, the performances are great. The sister, right, the the bad influence, older sister played by Ella Rumpf is fantastic. And then the other thing that I, I love about this movie is that last shot. So we love the actor oh. uh, Lucas Laurent. Yes. Uh, Laurent. Sorry, Laurent Lucas. We love him from... Colvert, uh, we just love him. And that, that last shot with his kind of smirky face and shirtlessness made great, the whole, it was great. such a funny, dark way to end this movie. It was like just the chef's kiss. Yeah, this is a fantastic movie. Um, and I like that this does do that. It, it really dives into sort of the coming of age metaphor here. And that's a huge area of academic study is how the college environment is great for just development of people, mm-hmm. uh, sort of the exposure, the timing, typically, although that's not necessarily as true anymore. We have lots of non-traditional age students now. Um, but yeah, it just really plays on that as, as the college atmosphere as being a place where you sort of develop uh, as a person. And I, I just love the metaphor there. And it's so it's a delicate balance to have a such a gory movie still be a very good artsy movie. Uh-huh. And it, that's a really tough thing to balance. And it does it so well here. I really like the performances. And the other thing I really like about this is we don't really get in college movies is the international setting for college. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that I can't even think of a whole lot of other movies where I've seen that. But that's something that really enthralled me, aside from everything else that's great about this movie, is trying to figure out, like, wow, this is a totally different setting for me. It's an elite vet school right. in France. Yeah. I have no idea what this looks like. And by the end of the movie, I'm like, I think I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we find out about their their hazing and their secret society. Right. <laughs> it gets a little, uh, yeah, a little unappetizing. But it's also a delicate balance, I think, when you're working with the metaphor to keep it from beating you over the head. And this is this does it, like you mentioned, Hope, so well. You take the metaphor and you just you let it breathe. I mean, you give the audience credit for you're with me, right? Because I'm going. 
and and I love that because that that for me is a delicate balance that I, that I don't think is pulled off with this much success that often. I think that there's a fearlessness in the way that Ducourneau approached it and and the commitment that she gets from her cast and the way that she's, I think, comfortable complicating the core story. Um, and oh, my God, the dog. Can we just talk for a second about that dog? Uh, Everybody knew it wasn't the dog's fault. So you had that moment of, oh. But the other one, Gordon, you mentioned the international college horror. There's a German one called Anatomy that we've talked about. Well, we talked about in the German podcast and it's a it's a medical school. And it's 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 a weird look at the way the university system is set up in other countries. Uh, but it's got a lot of the same ideas of secret societies and just bad things happening and cadavers and blood. And it's an interesting movie as well. It's not by any stretch nearly as good as Raw, which I, I think I mean, I know we had it on our best of the year list when it came out a couple of years ago in 2016. And I I'm totally in agreement that you just don't see this kind of viscera and body horror in a film that is considered, you know, like elite sort of art house horror the way that you do here. And it is amazing that she was able to, I think, as you guys have both said, succeed in in all of those different areas. So that's why it's our number one. And I just saw where she was. I, I looked to see what she was doing next. And it's a movie. I can't remember the name of it, but it's a movie that is based on that idea of uh, a younger man comes and says that he is the grown-up version of a child that was missing years earlier. And then, is it really him? And so it sounded very interesting. I'm, I'm, I was very interested, and of course, I want to see what she's doing next. And uh, I'm not sure if it was a straight-up horror movie described as one, but it's, it's already got my interest. No question. Well, that sounds great. So, Raw, number one on our list of college horror. That's from 2016. Look it up if you haven't. Definitely worth seeing. So let us know what you think. If you think some that we missed, um, we're happy to keep that conversation going as we always are. You can find us on Twitter. Fright Club Pod is our Twitter. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it is Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our written movie reviews and our other weekly podcast about all the new releases coming out uh, called The Screening Room. You can find all that on our main website at madwolf.com. And Gordon Maples, where can we find you on the interwebs? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. At Gordon Maples, G-O-R-D-O-N-M-A-P-L-E-S. And then on my sort of infrequently updated at this point, given the whole grad school thing, uh, blog Misentropy, M-I-S-A-N-T-R-O-P-E-Y.com. I do my Ivy on Celluloid series there where I talk about college movies and sort of a ridiculous amount of depth. Uh, I've got a feature on there on Final Exam if anybody wants to know more about that one. Nice. Well, that's exciting. And so our next episode would normally be the Fright Club Live And since it's not going to be the regular Fright Club Live, which we would already have planned out because we'd be showing a movie, we're kind of whopper jawed in terms of topics. So I think we're going to do another poll. So keep a lookout on Twitter for another poll. You can help us decide what our next topic is. And I know in the coming weeks, we've got an episode where we're going to be joined by director George Popov, who just did The Droving. Nice. Yeah, We're going to talk about um, Dark Ages horror films. And we also have Sam Kolesnik, who is a writer. She wrote this amazing horror novel called True Crime. Buy it, read it, love it. And she's going to join us and talk about grief in horror movies. And we're hanging out with some cool people, just like we were today. Gordon, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And you brought a lot of great insight being right there on the campus and, and living it every day. So we appreciate that. Of course. It's a pleasure. So until next time, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Fright Club Podcast. Stay frightful, my friends. <laughs>